secure financial advisors, a registered investment advisor. This show does not intend to provide personalized investment advice through this broadcast and does not represent that the securities or services discussed are suitable for any investor. Investors are advised not to rely on any information contained in the broadcast in the process of making a full informed investment decision. This is your money, your wealth on Talk Radio 760 KFMV. Now, here's Joe Anderson and Big Al Clopine. Hey, welcome back to the program. Show's called Your Money or Wealth. Joe Anderson here, certified financial planner, practitioner with uh, Big Al Clopine. He's a CPA, certified public accountant. Yeah, that's what that stands for. Do you have to say practitioner after CPA? No. I wonder if I think I'm certified public accountant, certified financial planner. Practitioner. You're supposed to say practitioner? I don't know. I just, you I just do. I read that somewhere. But oh, I, yeah. No, I've never heard that for an account. Probably I'm in, I'm in the danger zone you, <laughs> and for compliant reasons. We know. We get a, we get a memo every week, don't we? Uh, guys, you can't really say that. Okay. Okay. All right. We'll be more careful. This is my favorite part of the show, folks. We've been doing this the last couple of uh, weeks, and... Um, I got the email bag, Alan. Investopedia okay. is all over me. Okay, they are. They are. Hey, they get. I even got the list this time. Nine questions. Well, you can't see the questions. I, I can. I, they're right in front of me. Who gave them the questions? <laughs> Son of a gun. I have sources. So, all right. Here, give me that list. You mean I don't get to see them? Oh, geez. So I'm I'm going off the cuff. Yeah, again. we got to go off the cuff. <laughs> okay. All right. Wow. I remember last week. It's like, what happens when you have a high-margin product and <laughs> no profits? Get new management. <laughs> that's what I said. Huh? Listen that's, to the podcast last week. That's Big Al. Great, great stuff. All right. So Investopedia, they send me these questions each week. Okay. And they, um, they I mean, why we, because they're good questions. Well, some of them are. Some of them are awful. Um, no offense, <laughs> Investopedia. But, All right. What, um, do you, what do you got for me? But the, the point of this exercise is that I'm sure a lot of you have the same questions as these people have. Sure. And so we can answer these questions and you're like, oh, well, oh, that yeah. kind of, yeah, that, that, that applies to me. That fits. Fit did. And, All it, right. and even if it doesn't fit, it's interesting. Here we go. Here's one. Uh, this is right up your alley there, Big Al. Okay. Uh, let's see. This individual's asking um, if they qualify for a capital gains exclusion. Okay. All right. So he's... So here's the email. All right. I have two townhome units, 9 and 10. Okay. <laughs> I lived in number 10 since 2006 and rented number 9. Okay. I want to sell both and buy a new larger home using capital gains. Okay. I will have approximately 200000 from number 10 and 150000 from number 9 in okay. capital gains. Okay. The new home will cost approximately 500000 If I use these gains as a down payment for a new home, do I qualify for a capital gain exclusion under Taxpayer Relief Act of 1997? Wow, going way back. I like that. Well, let me answer that question. Well, the Tax Relief Act of 1997, is he, he's not... He doesn't know about the 121 exclusion? No, that's when it came about. It's 1997. Yeah, yeah, I believe. So that's the 121 exclusion yeah, is under the Tax Relief Act of 1997. I, I believe so. Yeah, don't take, quote me 100%, but that's what I, that's what I believe. All right. Anyway, so what he's referring to is when you sell your residence, 
and you've lived in it at least two out of the last five years, and you're single, you get a $250,000 gain exclusion. So that means the first $250,000 of capital gain is, is, is as if it didn't happen. And if you're married, it's $500,000 gain exclusion. So, all right. So he so, lived in number 10. Yeah, number 10. So that's number 10 two, um, is 200 grand. So two, he's good. $200,000 capital gain there. No problem. Okay, the rental, big problem. He's got $150,000 gain in the rental. That's fully taxable at capital gain rates. I don't care what you do with the money. It's, it's fully taxable. Now, he could do a 1031 exchange on number nine and buy another rental, but that has to be rental for rental. It can't be rental for residence. So there's really no way to roll a gain from a rental into a principal residence. So here's what he should do. You should then buy the bigger home, 1031 exchange number nine yes. into the home, rent his home out for a couple of years, and then move into it. I like your thinking. Yeah, one step ahead of me, because you can do that. So here's, here's the rule. So you can sell number nine. You can buy a home that you eventually want to move into, but it has to be a rental at the time that you buy it. And you ought to rent it for a while. I think most accountants would say a couple years might do it, but really... It's, it's not so much the time frame, it's the intent when you actually bought it. So if I have any IRS agents listening, uh, just be careful because if you do intend to make that your residence, you could be challenged because you didn't have the right intent when you bought it. However, needless to say, people are doing that. They're selling a rental, they're buying a rental, which is a nicer place. They 1031 the exchange into that. He can sell his residence, and there's no gain on that, so he can use that down payment to pay for this other uh, residence. And then you rent that out for a while, and later on you change your mind. Now it's, uh, you know what, now I think I want to live in it. Let's not have that be a rental anymore. And that actually does work. So the 121 exclusion, 250000 if you're single, 500000 if you're married. Yeah, you got to live in the house two in the last five years. And, and by the way, because I get this question all the time, both spouses have to own the home for two years and live in the home for two years. I get the question, well, what if I get married the day before I sell? And like the, your spouse has never owned it or never lived in it. doesn't work. Your spouse has to live in it two years and be two years of ownership. How about if I get divorced? Mm-hmm. 1230. Okay, I'm, um, and I right. Uh, well, then, let's say I sell it at twelve thirty one, and I get divorced a couple of days before that, so I'm not married. So, so that's there. It depends upon how you title the property. So, if, if the titling is kept in both husband and wife, they would each get the two fifty each. They get the two fifty each because now it's a tenant in common interest between the two of them. But if I how about if it was sep- well, no, if, if it was if separate it, property, it, she wouldn't have been on the title anyway. But she, yeah, or, she lived there. Or let's just say it was let's let's say it was transferred to the the wife, and the husband is no longer has title. Now the wife sells it a year later, so they both have lived in it two out of the last five years, right? But it's only the wife's property now, <laughs> so it only shows up on her tax return. So, so she what, would only get the two fifty. She only get two fifty. Mm-hmm. Got it. So I guess if you're in a divorce situation and this applies to you, you just want to be careful how you do the property settlement. How about this? Let's say it's separate property. I inherited home. Okay. Okay. And I live in the home, and this is 20 years ago. Okay. I get married, but I keep it in a separate property trust or something yeah. like that, yeah. right? Yeah. And so, but wife moves in, and then we live there for 10 years. I'm on title of it. She's not yes. on title, but she's lived there. We're married. Yes. I sell it. What do I get? Yeah, I think you get the 250 only because uh, your your wife was not an owner. 
ownership and um, I'm going to take that one to audit. Occupancy. You're going to audit. You're going to question that one? <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, stay tuned. We'll get the – that's no, – I think that's the answer. All right. Well, there you go. Big Al. All right. Here's another one for you. Then we got to take a break. Okay. How do I become financially strong and independent at 22 years old? Oh, wow. Oh. I like that. I have a full-time job. Um, he's making $10,800 annually before taxes. Okay. I'm 22 years old, single, have no kids. Okay. I have no established credit. I need to buy my first car and get an apartment or trailer before 2016 ends. Where should I start investing with $1,000? Should I put it in savings or look into other options? <laughs> Good question. Well, you've got competing goals there, bud. I mean, if you want to become wealthy, then you don't want to be buying cars and things like that. On the other hand, you need a place to live and you need a car to drive in. So Al's advice is walk. <laughs> get a bi- no, get a bicycle. <laughs> a bicycle? And live in a trailer. Yes. <laughs> you know what? Um, here's a really good option for this individual. I just did a video on being financially strong in your 20s and 30s. Yes. Uh, so you can, you can go to purefinancial.com. It's a seven-minute video, I believe, or is it eight? I'm thinking seven. Maybe I said six last time and I got in trouble because it's actually seven. Whatever. It? Okay. It's under 10 minutes. Okay. I should be clean. It's an <laughs> under 10-minute video. Uh, go to purefinancial.com. It's really quick. It just tells you everything that you basically need to know if you're in your 20s and 30s um, to become financially independent. Because that's the goal, right? we got to get them while they're young. Alan. We do. And I think if you can start saving, and believe it or not, start saving for retirement, try to set aside 15%. I'll give you a little teaser. 15% of your income at any age. And just keep doing that all throughout your career. You're going to have plenty of money when you retire. I, I mean, anyone who's recently retired, they know this, right? And they, I mean, most people that are recently retired are retiring soon. Unfortunately, now, they, I mean, they have three significant challenges facing them today. Truth be known, you probably haven't saved nearly enough for retirement, and you don't have enough to last you the next 25, 30, or even 40 years. So you got to get serious about saving right now. Uh, you have no retirement plan. Right now, your plan is nothing more than a bunch of, what, scattered statements. There's no plan or strategy surrounding health care, taxes, Social Security, or how really your investments are going to work all together. And if you're truly honest with yourself, you probably have more questions than you have answers. And finally, 99% of what you know about retirement is dead. It's the equivalent of like an eight-track tape player. You need new solutions that are going to stand up in today's challenging environment, like record low interest rates, increasing longevity, skyrocketing healthcare, medical expenses, unprecedented stock market volatility in a country with what, $18, $19 trillion in debt? Do I want to keep going here? Do you want me to? You may no longer rely on company pensions or government for your retirement. You're totally on your own. This is Your Money, Your Wealth on Talk Radio 760 KFMB. Hey, welcome back to the show. The show's called Your Money, Your Wealth. Joe Anderson, Big Al Clopine hanging out. Thanks for tuning in. Going to what, seven? Yeah, sounds good to me. We're talking... Uh, Financial planning today. Yeah, we are. You got some questions for me? Yes, I do. Um, so Investopedia, um, they send me these questions once a week. And so what we do is read them on the air. So here's another one for you, buddy. Okay. All right. So my mother-in-law is in her 70s. Okay. okay. She will live comfortably on her monthly Social Security check and has one-third of her assets in the bank. 
she will come into the other two-thirds when she sells her home. What do you suggest she does with the money she gets from the sale? Should she get an inflation hedge in some appreciation while being conservative at her age? So should she get an inflation hedge and some appreciation while being conservative at her age. Well, uh, so this sounds like you kind of want your cake and eat it too. Yeah, you want a little of both, right? Let's get high returns, no risk. Yeah, so mother doesn't exist. Mother in law in her seventies, basically living off social security. So, um, but uh, how's she living now? I wonder. Because not on high on the hog, I'll tell you that. Well, she's living comfortably on her monthly social security check. That's what it says. Okay, so she's fine. But, and then one-third of her assets are in the bank, and the other two-thirds are in the home. So she's going to sell the home. So she's got one-third of her assets safe in cash, probably, right? So the other two-thirds she needs to invest, but she doesn't necessarily need the money to live off of. Right. She's in her 70s, but there could be a long-term care sure. issue. So does she have long-term care insurance and right. all of that stuff? Right? Yeah, a lot of questions. Uh, so, I mean, she could easily live to 95. I mean, we don't know, 70s, or early 70s, low 70s, I think it said. It said mother-in-law is in her 70s. 70s, yeah. okay. So let's say she's 75. So she, she could live another 20, <laughs> 20 years, 20 right? Years, sure. right? And so as a consequence, do you really want to be 100% safe and get almost no return? The answer is no. That's 20 years. And so, yes, you need some kind of inflation hedge. But in terms of how much you would actually have an inflation hedge, and that would be kind of in, in the market, you know, versus something that doesn't have an inflation hedge, like cash or like some bonds and things like that. Although some bonds do have an inflation hedge, treasury inflated protected securities, for example. But yeah, you probably want to have some in the market and uh, some safety. But yeah, there, but there's, these, there's, these questions there, are impossible to there, answer. Well, there's too, many, there's too many questions to answer. So, so for example, here's a couple different paths. Right. One is if she's never going to need the money, Let's just pretend she's she's got long-term care insurance and she's good, right? Living off Social Security, high in the hog, right. Social Security. Killing so, it. So then this money is really going to go to the kids. So you might as well be a slightly more aggressive than you would normally be for her because she doesn't need it. Sure. What's the goal for the money? Right. Now, the truth is that probably isn't true because you never know when you might need the money for some kind of medical event or well, even if you have long-term care insurance, maybe you got a two, three, four-year policy. What if you need it for 10 years? Right, so you have to be mindful of that. So you, so you, so you don't just want to be crazy. And but. I think the answer, in, in real simple terms, is really to take a look at what the money's for, and then take a look at what the income need is for the the portfolio if there is one, and then find a target rate of return, and then build a portfolio with the least amount of risk to achieve that target rate of return. Right? Is it three percent? Is it six percent? Is it five percent or something like that? Right. Right. It's not like, and and I hear this on other radio shows. Well, you should have a sixty forty split and go into the Vanguard fund and go into this fund or whatever. I mean, that, that's ridiculous how they can, why they would put that out there because I I, I that, think that's irresponsible. In yeah, a it sense. is irresponsible because there's too many unknowns. There's way too many unknowns. So yeah, you probably want to take a look and see. Well, what's the money for? How long do you, uh, good health, bad health? Mm-hmm. What's the long-term care situation? Take a look at you know. And if you don't need the money, why take on the risk? 
Right, so you just build something fairly conservative. But if it's not for her, like Al said, if it's for the kids, I mean, we have clients in their 80s, but they want to leverage the money for their grandchildren. That's right, for college. So, yeah, so or, it's like, or, well, or here, even... it's not for me, it's for the grandchildren. So the, the, my grandchildren's five years old. So yes, those are inequities. But if they're looking at creating a retirement income, of course, you would have a different strategy um, you know, in regards to what they're trying to accomplish with the money. I think a lot of times, again, people put the investment in front of the planning. And yeah. that's where most people fall into problems because they have zero confidence in their investment strategy because they don't know what the money should be doing for them. Yeah, so they just look at the return. That's their that's their gauge. You're right. So you take a step back, right? You, you, you try to figure out what the money's for. What are your goals with the money? And it's probably a bunch of things. I mean, some of it's for contingency. What if I have a long-term care event? Some of it might be for the kids or the grandkids. And it's like, all right, now once you know that and once you can figure out a tax plan and reduce taxes, then it's like, all right, what rate of return do I need to make to meet my goals? Goals-based investing, that's really how everyone should be investing. And so few people do. So so many people go right to the investment and go, what's the return? Yeah. I want the highest return with, the, with no risk. Yeah. Okay. Well, then you're going to get sold a stupid product. Right, that that really doesn't exist, and you're probably not going to be happy. With you're it. not going to be happy with it, right? All right, I got another one, quick one for you, buddy. Okay. All right, my father sold a piece of property that he inherited um, in order to pay for assisted living expenses. Okay. All right. He passed away the year of the sale. His income was less than fifteen thousand. Does his estate pay capital gains on the property, which is one hundred forty-four thousand? Uh, on the date of the inheritance. Oh, interesting question. So did does it say, did it sell before he died or after he died? See, my father sold a piece of property that he inherited in order to pay for assisted living expenses. Okay. okay. So his dad sold a, uh, some property. Sure. Then he passed away the year after the sale. Oh, the year after. Got it. Okay. His income was less than 15000 Okay. Does his estate pay capital gains on the property, which... Um, is $144,000 in value. Well, in, in a roundabout way, yes, but it gets paid on his return, on his final return. I'm assuming he, because of the question, he hasn't filed the return for last year. And so, yeah, that has to get paid on that tax return. But then yeah. you have to take a look here, too. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about this. Um, we're kind of uh, on a hard break here. Uh, but, right, he inherited so you could get a step up in basis. Then he sold it. There might be very little tax in a it, sense. It depends when he inherited it, though. But oh yeah. yeah, well I suppose it says the gains here, one hundred forty-four thousand. So yeah. who pays the tax? Does it go on which return? So that's what we're going to answer when we get back. If you want more information about us, go to purefinancial.com. Purefinancial.com. We'll be back in just a second. Show's called Your Money, Your Wealth. Now back to Your Money, Your Wealth on Talk Radio seven sixty KFMB. Hey, welcome back to the show. The show's called Your Money, Your Wealth. My name's Joe Anderson. I'm a certified financial planner with Big Al Clopine. He's a CPA. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, join us on all of our social media. We got YouTube, we got Twitter, we got Facebook and all that other fun stuff. Um, or just go to iTunes. Yeah, your Money, Your Wealth. Get, get our podcast. Get the podcast right, right yeah. to your device, smart device, and you weekly. Can, you can go to our website and watch our TV show if you haven't seen it, uh, purefinancial.com, P-U-R-E, financial.com. Yeah, I heard a little um, Emmy Emmy buzz around <laughs> the office. Well, you know, the, the last week, we, got, we were higher rated than any other show in our time slot. How about that? Yeah, I think seven people watched. 
because we're at like three thirty in the yeah. morning. <laughs> we had the we had the corner of the market. Yep, Emmy Buzz going around. I'm gonna this weekend. You know what I'm doing now? Shopping for a new tux. <laughs> Pick me up one too, and then yep. I'll return it if yep. we don't get it. So, all right, before the break, we were talking about this question um, uh, we got. So let me repeat the question to you, Al. Okay. All right, so this um, child is curious about the taxes about his father um, transaction. So his father sold a piece of property that he inherited in order to pay for assisted living. Okay. So he inherited a property, sold it, and then that went to assisted living expenses. Okay. He passed away the year after the no, he passed away the year of the sale. Okay. Sorry. Got it. He passed away the year of the sale. His income was less than fifteen grand. Does his estate pay capital gains on the property? Uh, which gain one forty four in value from the date of inheritance. Oh, okay. Well you did a better job reading it this time. Yeah. <laughs> So anyway, it depends upon whether it actually sold before his death or after his death, because that's going to depend. He passed away the year, the year of up. the sale. Right. We don't know whether the he sale... He sold it, though, yeah. because he had to pay for assisted living, then he died in the assisted living facility. Sure. But we still doesn't say for sure. I mean, we oh, can God, make the... the CPA we... needs everything so exact. It's so <laughs> annoying. <laughs> you... Ten years of this, he's so annoyed. Pulling your hair. Well, out. I don't know. It's not written down. It's not black and white. Can't do it. <laughs> I'm still gonna answer it the way I want to. All right. If, if, you it, if do. he sold it before he passed, it gets paid for on his final individual tax return, and and of course the the tax itself will be paid by his estate because he's the, dead. His, his, his dead. I mean the money went, but it's going to be paid on his. Final tax return. And that's, I agree with you, Joe. That's probably more likely. But on the other hand, what if, <laughs> what if he sold the property to pay for the assisted living in anticipation of paying the assisted living and he died before it even sold? But then he sold, it ended up selling after he passed. Then it gets stepped up. Then it gets uh, right. a step up in basis. To the heirs because he's dead. Then right. it's sold. And, and then and I guess the estate paid, sold it? Yeah, it's paid for by the estate. Uh, the estate actually file, gets a federal ID number uh, as an estate and trust. And that capital gain is taxed on that return. But so, there's, no, there's no gain or loss because there's a step up in basis. So, so all right, you're my beneficiary. I'm selling my house. And I'm an escrow. The signing is tomorrow. Okay. I die today. Okay. And it has a million dollar gain. Sure. You don't pay any tax. No, because it got to step up the moment you died. So even though, let's say I died so right I, at the table signing the papers. Because I poisoned you. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> Perfect. Some quick action poison. Yeah, right. All right. Um, yeah, then it's a, it's a step up. It's uh, the, the property transferred uh, to the estate. So I guess before he distributes the estate, he needs to make sure that he files that return and pays the taxes. Correct. And so on his return, right. so what it's going to show is $144,000 capital gain. Yeah. He's got $15,000 of income. That $15,000 of income is going to get wiped out with his deduction, probably like his standard deduction exemption mm -hmm. just about. And so there'll probably be close to 40000 of the one forty four tax-free, so they'll pay capital gains on $100,000. Depends on where he lives, 25%, so twenty five grand. Right. So make sure that you cut a check to the IRS roughly of $25,000, then you distribute the $100,000 to the heirs. That's accurate. So, so in that in that partic particular example, had they been able to borrow a little bit of money, right, before he 
passed, then then the when the property is sold, that loan gets paid off, and there are no taxes but because see, of the step-up in basis. I think he's confused here, too, with this question. Could be. Because if he sold the place, I mean, so he's, I guess, unless the guy was in an assisted living for how many years? I mean, $144,000 gain? Yeah. But well. he inherited it. Did he live in the house? Because if he lived in the house... Yeah, then we're back to the one Two out of the last exclusion. five years, yes. right? right? It doesn't matter where it came from if you purchased it or you inherited it. If he'd inherited the house two out of the last five years and lived in it, then yeah. sold it, then he would be able to exclude the $250,000 of gain here. Yeah, and then there would be no, no tax, even if it's sold prior to his passing. You're right. Do I qualify for a backdoor Roth IRA? Here we go again. Okay. <laughs> Didn't we have this question last week? Uh, I own a 403B. Okay. A 457 okay. and a DCP account. Okay. Do these count towards the pro rata rule? Uh, they do not. How about that, right? Because those are ERISA type plans. They do not count for the pro rata well, rule. They're not ERISA type plans, but go ahead. <laughs> well, forget what I said then. They are. They are lawyer sponsored plans. They are non IRA plans. How yes, about that? There you go. Okay, am I correct on that? Let's <laughs> man. Working with a CFP, just details, details, details. <laughs> anyway, so um, uh, <laughs> the pro rata rule means that if you if your income is too high, you can't do a normal Roth contribution. Yes. And what what are those limits? It's one hundred seventeen thousand to one hundred thirty four thousand for single. One hundred thirty two. Yeah, you're right. One hundred thirty two for a single taxpayer. That's the phase out period. Yeah, one eighty four to one ninety four for um, married. 116 mm-hmm. to 132 for single. Yeah, so if you're below those numbers, you can do $5,500 uh, each year that you have earned income or your spouse has earned income. Or uh, if you're over 50, it's $6,500. But if your income exceeds those, then you cannot do a Roth contribution, but you can do a non-deductible IRA. Even if you're maxing out your 403B and 457, you can still do a non-deductible IRA and then you got this money in the IRA, you can then turn around and convert that. And because you did not get a tax deduction, you don't have to pay any tax on the conversion. Hence, it's kind of like a Roth contribution, but they call it a backdoor because you went in the backdoor, you did a regular IRA, non-deductible, and you converted that. The problem with that is if you have other IRAs, uh, uh, then you've got to do what's called the proration or aggregation rule. Right. That's what he was referring to. He's mm-hmm. like, okay, well, here, I have these other retirement accounts. Do I have to follow the pro rata aggregation yeah, rules? Yeah, and, and you don't. You don't. So the, pr- the pro rata rules means if you had $100,000 of IRA already with, with uh, you know, where you got the tax deduction, let's just do that as an example, and you do another $5,000 into a non-deductible IRA. So it's only $5,000 divided by 105. You have to add up all your IRAs together. And that's something a little bit less than 5% of that Roth conversion is tax-free. The rest is fully taxable. But interestingly enough, the 403B, the 457, the DCP, the uh, 401A, the the 401K, all of those are non-IRAs. So they don't count towards this aggregation rule. I mean, you got to try to imagine your retirement game plan Right, it was no longer just about a number or just about your investments. Imagine if you could fill in all the gaps and you could have all of these answers you know, to this rock solid game plan that covered everything from A to Z. Imagine what kind of confidence that would bring. Now, back to your money, your wealth on Talk Radio 760 KFMB. Hey, welcome back to the program. Show's called Your Money, Your Wealth. My name's Joe Anderson. I'm a certified financial planner. I am with Alan Klopine. He's a CPA. Thanks for tuning in. 
Hopefully you're enjoying the show this far. Big Al and I always enjoy doing it for you. Uh, you can go to iTunes uh, and go to Your Money, Your Wealth if you want to get our podcast. Um, or you can go to purefinancial.com. P-U-R-E, purefinancial.com. Got a couple more emails for you, big guy. Great. What do you got? All right. How should I manage my extraordinary tax year? Oh, okay. I like that. All right. So here we go. And this is a long one. <laughs> I've been laid off. Oh, boy. And retiring earlier than planned. Okay. I will receive one year's salary of severance. Okay. Okay. Not deferrable to 2017. Got it. And I am told I must take my 401k as an in-kind distribution this year in total in order to have favorable treatment of NUA portion. Wow. This is getting interesting. However, I'm also told that while I can defer taxation on capital gains tax on the appreciated growth, I must currently pay ordinary income tax on the basis amount, which will approach about $100,000. Yeah. Is this guidance accurate? Can I do anything to manage taxes for this year? I understand income averaging was repealed in 1986 and isn't returning. Right. That is true. Oh, okay. That's a good question. Laid off, one year of severance, all paid in this year. And it doesn't say when he or she got laid off, but let's, I don't know, let's assume half year. I don't, we don't know anything else, right? That's all we know. That's, That's all we yeah. got. So you you know you have more than a year's salary within a year, and this net unrealized depreciation. So what this is is when you have company stock inside of your four hundred one k, in the year that you uh, retire, you can uh, pull your company stock out of the account. You can put it into your brokerage account, whatever the you paid for it, whatever the cost basis is. Then you have to pay ordinary income tax on that. Uh, but the rest of the gain, you don't pay any tax on until you actually sell that stock. And when you do sell it, it's long-term capital gain, which for most people is a lot cheaper rate. So whether that's a good idea or not is completely dependent upon what the value of the stock is. So in this case, what she's, is it he or she or doesn't say? Doesn't say. Okay. So I'll just say. Nomad. <laughs> he, she. The he, she. Uh, the, <laughs> this individual uh, said that they have... Implied Pat. that they have company stock of a hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> What'd you say? Its name's Pat. Pat. So it could go either way. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't help. Okay, Pat. Do you, that? <laughs> Do you remember that Saturday night, Saturday night live on Pat? Oh God, I love that one. Yeah, I don't remember that. You one. don't remember Pat from Saturday Night Live? No. Who did it? I don't know. You couldn't tell. It was some. It was a. But you couldn't tell if it was a boy or a girl. Oh, got it. <laughs> and then they kept on asking Pat questions to, to, to see. try to figure it out. Yeah. Just, oh. oh, that's kind of funny. So good. Anyway, so you got you got this company stock. Uh, it costs a hundred thousand dollars. Yes, if you do this NUA, which is an option, by the way, it's not required. It's yeah, an option. I mean, you don't have to do the NUA that year. You mm-hmm. can push it off into twenty eighteen. Yeah. Well, unless they're they're twenty seventeen. Or, yeah, 2017. Yeah. yeah, unless, I mean, Pat was, <laughs> was implying that he or she had to do it. 
in 2016. That's what how I read it. Right, but I think he was getting that advice that he had to do the net unrealized appreciation in the year he separates from service, but I don't think that's true because I've done net unrealized appreciation like transactions yeah. several years later. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I mean, just just recently, we, I, I did one um, for an individual at SDG&E, worked there for, I don't know, 40 years or something like that, kept the money in the plan, came in, and then significant gains, of course, with SDG&E, he's worked there for 40 years. Right. And we were able to do the net unrealized appreciation, and it was several years after separated. Right. But maybe the plan doc on certain plan documents. So I mean, this is this is not tax law. This is certain plans. And, and yes. here's the funny thing too with plan documentation. So let's say the company creates the plan within the 401k, and they're saying, okay, we're going to allow this, not allow this, and so on and so forth. So the company creates that 401k plan document that supersedes the IRS, which is crazy to me. But whatever the plan doc says is the law, even though the law might say something else like the pension protection act of 2006 came about and then that had some different changes in the overall way that like Roth conversions for instance you don't necessarily have to go to an IRA anymore to go directly to a Roth you can go from um, a, a qualified plan to a Roth in-service distributions sure um, IRA rollovers and things like that there's so there's certain things that the law allows individuals to do but if that plan doc is more stringent then you have to follow the, the, the plan doc or at death, for instance. Like uh, still some plan docs will say, no, once you die, this money has to be distributed out within five years. They're still back on pre-2000 rules, right? So they d haven't updated the plan doc for some reason. So you have to follow those plan document rules. So with this, if he was going to do the net unrealized appreciation, well, I guess well, we'll just assume he has to do it in 2016. Okay. But, but I no, I, no, I think that's good advice, Joe. I, I think it's. Uh, I think that's the first thing you check. Can you do this? In <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! Your your whole thing almost fell over. <laughs> do you see those cat like reflexes? <laughs> yeah, it was pretty good. Guess we got this. We got this music stand today, right? Oh, and so yours almost god. fell right over. Yes. You got so excited. I did. I <laughs> this got really. I, I complimented you. <laughs> Dude, I thought I was going to lose Anyway, it. I thought that was good advice, which is, first thing you do, Pat, is... <laughs> <laughs> Pat, <laughs> you got you to gotta see if you can do this in-service withdrawal in 2017. Yeah, you because, do the unrealized appreciation in 2017. But you first got to see, is it worth it? Like, if, if your stock is worth 110000 you only have 10000 to gain. This is a stupid idea. <laughs> yeah, right. But if the stock is worth a million, million bucks, bucks, you got 900000 that you can switch to capital gains from ordinary income. I'm all over that, but try to do it next year. Right, right. So I guess that's a really good point, Al, is that, all right, so here's this net unrealized appreciation again real quick is that all right so this individual has severance that he has to pay this year and then he was told or she was told that they, they have to take out the, the net unrealized appreciation that year okay well hundred thousand dollars is the basis so you have to look at well how much appreciation is it because if i'm going to pay ordinary income tax on a hundred thousand dollars that stock better be worth at least what five hundred thousand yeah, a lot more <laughs> A lot more. But <laughs> you don't also have to do this. You don't have to do the whole thing. Right. You can look at your tax bracket, just like what we talk about with Roth conversions. Is like, all right, well, here, you want to look at what line 43 is, what tax bracket that you're in, and then you can do partial net unrealized appreciation, too, to maximize whatever bracket that you think is appropriate for you. So there's so many different combinations of strategy that this individual should look at. I believe that they might be getting bad advice of 
front of saying you have to do that this year, I would dig in a little bit deeper. But if you absolutely have to, you have to take a look at what the appreciation is of that stock. And is it worth it to do the full 100000 Or is it worth it to do something else? Or is it worth it to do it at all? Correct. I mean, you don't necessarily want to do it if there's not a large gain because it, it, it's pointless. Yeah, and Joe, let's say that it can be deferred to 2017. Then you got to look at your salary, your one-year severance, plus your other salary that you earned. You got to do a little tax projection, figure out what bracket you're in. You probably not have no, don't have enough paid in for California, so you want to prepay that by year end for the tax deduction, unless you're subject to alternative minimum tax, then it's a waste. You want to look at charitable strategies. There's all kinds of stuff. You got to do that before year end. And Joe, it's, uh, it is interesting when we get cases like this because it, it all really boils down to taxes. Don't stop when your paycheck does. They, they keep coming. Unfortunately, tapping your retirement nest day comes with all sorts of new rules, but also opportunities if you understand the strategies. But as you near retirement, tax planning becomes more important than ever before. But you must use a forward-thinking tax strategy if you want to get this right. If you're serious about saving taxes in retirement, you got to line this up. you got to look at a bunch of years in the future in retirement to figure out how to pay less taxes.